I'm Jesse, and welcome to Red Cloaks Radio, where we are counting down to see if the Massachusetts legislator will or will not pass the Roe Act. With me today are Martha from the Boston Red Cloaks. And also Karen from the Boston Red Cloaks. Today is July 27th, and that means we have five days until the end of the legislative session. That's right. And today we've got a really special guest, Olivia Santoro from the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. Olivia is a community outreach strategist and has been a point person for the coalition since 2019. Welcome, Olivia. Thanks for having me. We're taking a closer look today at the Roe Coalition. It's an effort to coordinate support for the Roe Act across the Commonwealth. We just want to get started with some basic overview. Great. So at the beginning of 2019, when we first introduced this bill, the ACLU of Massachusetts, along with um, Planned Parenthood Advocacy Fund of Massachusetts and NARAL Pro-Choice Massachusetts, uh, joined forces um, to um, create uh, a public campaign for the Roe Act. And since the, the three organizations got together in early 2019, that coalition has grown to include over 80 other uh, endorsing organizations. Um, and so we've built a really powerful coalition over the last 18 months, I think that we're all proud of, um, including the incredible work that the Boston Red Cloaks um, have contributed to this movement over the, the last year and a half. Um, yeah, so I'm happy to elaborate if there are more questions, but that's that's sort of how we got started. Yeah, when you say year and a half, you're right. It is a long process. So can you talk a little bit about how the coalition grew? Because you started out, my understanding is, with the three lead organizing groups figuring out there needed to be a better connection across the state. Why? Why did you even think that in the first place? Did you not just figure, oh, 72% of the state is pro-choice. Everyone will just run right over and start calling their legislators. <laughs> I wish, I wish that had been the case. Um, yeah, we knew when we got together um, at the beginning of 2019 that, um, you know, as, as, as big and, and, and wider reach as our three organizations have, we knew that that wasn't inclusive of um, all of the people across Massachusetts um, who we knew um, would be with us on this issue and would want to contribute to um, the work um, to pass this bill. And so, um, you know, in, I remember those sort of early planning sessions getting together and trying to think of all of the different organizations across the state that we could invite to participate uh, in our coalition. And um, it sort of grew from there. And other organizations invited other groups um, into the fold that we didn't know. Um, and it's just been really um, fantastic um, to watch um, it grow over the last uh, year and a half and to see how many people um, have committed themselves to this fight. Um, it's nice to know uh, that there are so many other people out there fighting each day um, for the Roe Act. Well, I, I have a question. Since all the legislators mostly are men, are, do we have any other part of the coalition men or is it only a feminine groups? Yeah, you know, our coalition is really diverse. Um, there are a lot of um, men who, who participate in all of the different groups that are um, involved in the coalition who have um, contributed um, to this work from people who are on staff to volunteers who have come in. I think um, sort of regardless of gender, people have really been committed to um, coming into this fight. Okay, very, very good, thank you. Talking to representatives, what I've noticed is, is that you have to educate them from the basics, like how does a woman body works, how all the process goes. So do you think you have been able to do that to help them make the right decision for women? 
Yeah, I think that through this um, bill, um, there has been a lot of successful education um, of legislators in the state house about why we need it. And I think part of that is actually just rooted in this misconception around the kind of access there is to abortion care in Massachusetts. I think, um, you know, Massachusetts is often seen as the, a progressive beacon um, across the country. Um, but when you sort of get down under the surface, um, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of barriers that do exist um, to abortion care in the state. Um, and even in a state like Massachusetts, we have all seen how difficult it has been so far to to get the Roe Act um, over the finish line. Uh, and I think without the the campaign that we've built um, together, I don't think we'd, we'd even be this far um, along. Martha's right. When we've gone into the state house and we're silent as red cloaks, as handmaids, but we do actually have conversations with legislators. And it is surprising. People don't understand when people become aware that they're pregnant. They don't understand why people have abortions. They are not used to talking about abortion out loud, and they definitely don't seem to have anything beyond a uh, a definition understanding of what abortion is but even our state definition of abortion is laden with value judgments it's not scientific or medically accurate so part of this legislation would update those definitions have you found any controversy around that part of the Roe act i have not um i you know i think perhaps our folks who are talking to legislators um, on a more regular basis um, might have experienced a, a different situation but i think um, that has, we haven't seen as big a pushback on that as we have on some of those other big components of the bill, like expanding access to abortion past 24 weeks in the case of a fetal, fetal, fetal diagnosis, and then of course removing the parental consent and judicial bypass process. Um, I think the parental consent judicial bypass process has been the most contentious um, to date. It's so interesting because here we are, it's five days left. You know, the session's planning to end on Friday, so today is Monday. So even within Red Cloaks, there's discussion. Not everybody agrees exactly about what the strategy should be. Are there conversations about making compromises? Does it seem like compromise would help move it over the finish line here? I, I think sort of with any bill, it's rare that you get it across the finish line um, in its original inception. And so I think some kind of compromise is inevitable um, to getting it over the finish line. I think it, I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what that looks like right now, but I think um, I think you know that that would be a typical way for um, this process to finish. And I don't think anyone of any any of us could have imagined what the last six months would look like um, for this campaign. I think we were all feeling really good coming into um, uh, coming into January after the legislature went into recess, and I think. Um, with COVID-19, we couldn't have foreseen um, the challenges that we'd have over the last six months. And I think even with that, um, I think we've kept the ROAC present um, in legislators' minds. I've been advocating for women's reproductive health care, reproductive justice for a very long time, way before I got involved with the ROAC. When I speak with, with people, men or women, they're shocked to find out that we still have barriers. And then when I go on to explain why the Roe Act is so important, and I begin with the 24-week ban, they get it. They get it right away. You only have to tell them the situation on the 24-week fatal fetal anomaly thing, and they get it right away, and they're there. Move on to parental consent, whole different other story. I think a lot of these people take, take it personally. Oh, my daughter would be rejecting me. If, if I were to force this upon her or vice versa. 
The anti-choice people have been slaying Roe with a thousand cuts since the day after Roe versus Wade was passed. A strategy would be to do the same thing. So I would like, like to know, is it possible to, to make a compromise such as put the parental consent to the side for the time being, let's get some of this through. And then we can start again with parental consent, which really seems to take a long time to explain and to be accepted. What are, you, what are your thoughts and what, what's the discussion like amongst the group? Yeah, parental consent is one of the trickiest um, pieces of this uh, legislation for sort of exactly the same, exactly the reason that you pointed out that people, parents want their children to come to them. Um, and I can't remember who it was who put, who put this to me, but um, you know, we can't legislate family communication Right. And so my sort of, you know, line to somebody who is afraid that their children won't come to them is that, you know, this isn't necessarily or, or whose parents are sure that their children will come to them. But, you know, this isn't necessarily about you um, or, or even your child. We're talking about the most um, sort of vulnerable youth, right? People who have to go before a judge and ask for consent, um, you know, might be homeless, might not be living with a parent or guardian. Um, and so, uh, this process is about protecting our most vulnerable youth, right? And I hope that I hope that your child um, does come to you and you have those conversations. We definitely want those conversations to happen. Um, but this is really about looking out for people um, who are not fortunate enough to be able to have that um, family support with them. And I think, um, you know, again, I think that some compromise will likely happen. Unclear what it is, but um, the coalition does feel strongly that um, we need to um, remove barriers for young people um, in some way. This is a really, really important piece of the bill. And, you know, we, do, we don't want people to have to sort of enter this criminal legal system to have to access healthcare. Um, and so I don't think that we're willing to, um, to give up on that. I think there will be, um, again, some inevitable compromise language, um, but um, we're, we're holding strong that there needs to be um, some sort of uh, some sort of access for for young folks in this in this bill. Could that possibly happen before Friday? That's a good question. I don't know. Um, I think we're going to be pushing hard for the next five days because that's what we've done over the last um, 18 months. Um, and we're sort of in this situation that many other organizations are in where uh, Lots and lots of bills haven't been passed um, sort of because of the COVID-19 crisis. Our legislators rightfully have been dealing with a lot of emergency legislation related to that. And so everybody is sort of um, trying to make the issue that they're working on at the top of their legislators' minds as we um, enter into these last five days. And so I think anything could happen in the last five days and then we got to keep pushing. Um, and in the event that it doesn't happen this session, um, we're going to be committed to um, continuing to get it, get it passed because this movement that we've built is sort of too big and too powerful to be stopped. Um, and I know that at some point we're gonna get this done. Great, thanks. Yeah. You said that there was uh, some compromise. Would it be something to do on the language of the bill or more on like the actions, like the parent consent or some other thing? Yeah, I think compromises could inevitably happen on any um, sort of pieces of the bill. Um, and I think we'll, we'll, know more, we'll know more about that um, in the coming days if the bill is going to be um, pushed out of committee. But yes, I think it could happen um, right inevitably with any bill. Uh, compromises could happen in any pieces of the, the language that's written in there. When you send teens to courts instead of to doctors, it really is part of the 
pipeline, right? It really does end up impacting black and brown youth more than white youth. And it does impact children who have less access to healthcare, who don't have the financial means to, you know, find a lawyer to help them judge shop and figure out which judge they should go to to ask for permission. So it does impact the most vulnerable people. You also mentioned that the state house is, or one of you mentioned brilliantly, the state house is predominantly men. It may have been you, Martha. It may have been all of you, but we know it's 29% of people in the state house who are elected are women, and 8% are people of color. And it's a real marked difference from the distribution by gender and race in the Commonwealth. So what do you find when you're thinking about strategy, about how to bring people to the table to understand that this is a racial disparity as well as economic disparity? Yeah, I think when we're um, trying to educate our legislators about this issue, it's really important for people who have personal stories who have been directly impacted by um, this issue or will be directly impacted um, you know, in a positive way if the bill passes, um, that those are voices that we're bringing to our legislators. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, um, folks who are really well versed sort of in the legal language can sort of um, talk all day about um, these changes, but without understanding the human impact, um, particularly people who have who are have been impacted. Um, I think it's really hard for legislators to um, to understand that impact. And I think the, the voices of, um, you know, people who have had uh, issues accessing abortion care have been really important. And also the voices of providers who have provided abortion care or who um, are advocating on behalf of their patients um, and who are experts on this issue. I think that um, that has been really impactful um, in the legislature. And I don't think that we could have moved um, our legislators on this issue without those voices. Um, so really important that um, again, sort of speaking to your earlier question about building out this coalition at the beginning, right? We needed everybody and everybody's voices in this, uh, I think, to bring our legislators along, which I think is true of, of most issues. It seems painful when I think back to the hearing date because abortion has a unique stigma. So if someone's going to go in at a hearing and tell their story about wrongful policing, people are much more sympathetic to a story, at least right now, many more people are, not everybody, but they're more sympathetic, like, wow, that person was abused by the police. Really hard for people who've had an abortion to come out in public among strangers and share their stories. Um, yet, hundreds of people came forward at the hearing last June and did share those stories. It seems problematic in terms of strategy that all that outpouring of information goes to one committee and that committee holds all those stories and then are never seen or heard from again. So in terms of the public process in Massachusetts, you can lay your soul out there on the line, but you may find you get like literally nothing in return except thank you at the end of your speech. What is that like for you? Because you're asking people to come tell their stories, but they tell their stories and then maybe nothing happens, except that they've told their story, which can have consequences for their family if they're Catholic and their family does not support their choice and they share it in public. Yeah, absolutely. Um, whenever somebody comes forward to tell a personal story, they are, um, you know, taking a risk. Um, and there are, are folks in our coalition who work directly with storytellers um, to make sure that um, they are comfortable with that process and sort of know that sometimes those stories do fall on deaf ears um, and that can, you know, in increase trauma and frustration. Um, and so I think um, whenever we're working with storytellers, we have to understand that frame um, and, 
and, and so folks who have come forward or um, have sort of been aware of that, I hope, um, and, uh, and there's sort of no good uh, answer to, um, to why, the, the, you know, there's no, there's no good cure for those frustrations that might come through this process um, at this moment, except that we know that um, in the long run, um, coming forward and telling your personal story does have um, a positive impact and really does affect change. Um, and so, um, so much bravery from folks who have come out and been vulnerable and shared their stories. Um, a couple of weeks ago when we had our uh, Grow Act uh, rally, um, we had a couple of storytellers talking about their experience having to um, have an abortion past 24 weeks um, and just incredibly um, brave um, for coming forward and sharing that story and, um, and offering that um, as uh, sort of an education to legislators about why we need to pass this bill and so that other people are not gonna have that same experience going forward. Um, One of the speakers was so yeah. compelling and mm -hmm. I don't know if the same person also spoke at the hearing, but it was a similar story about having to literally leave her kids who were in Massachusetts in Massachusetts while she got the money together, $25,000 to fly to Colorado because she had a fatal fetal diagnosis. And part of what really stayed with me was she said how disappointed she was in the state for not having compassion. And I can only imagine her disappointment if after hearing the story and understanding it, there is no action. I don't want there to be failure, you know, but if it doesn't pass, how can you get people to come back and tell those heart-wrenching stories again if they feel that they did tell their story and nobody cared? And it was never a priority. It wasn't a priority in summer. It wasn't a priority in the fall. It wasn't a priority in the winter. Then COVID happened. It still wasn't a priority. How could you get them to come back? That's a really hard and uh, important question. Um, and I think that's something um, that we've all been sort of grappling with. And I think um, at the, uh, you know, coming into the close of any hard fought campaign um, are, is something that we have to think about because um, in the event that we don't get it done in the next five days, we're gonna have to, to figure out how to, um, how to come back together. Um, and I think truly believe that victory is within our grasp, even if it's not within our grasp in the next five days. Um, and of course, it's a personal decision for people to come back and continue to share their stories after um, after such real and frustrating disappointment. Um, but my message to those folks is that I do, I do believe that we will win. Um, and if they're willing to come back and help um, move this fight forward, um, I think that will get us closer to the finish line. But uh, that's going to have to be a personal decision for folks. Um, and I, I, I hope that we're I hope that we're not there in five days. Um, but if we are, I know that uh, I know that our organizations are committed to to seeing this fight through. And I hope people will um, continue that fight with us. So let's say it doesn't go through. We wait until they put it on the floor again, or how, do, what, how will it work? Yeah, there are different possibilities. I think, especially in this legislative session where things have been so, so weird. Um, you know, we're, we're under the impression that the, the, leg the formal session is gonna end this Friday. Um, sort of anything is possible. I think if there's a will to get something done, um, there will be a way to make it happen. Uh, I think traditionally, um, you know, the, it would have to come back to, um, to be reintroduced in the next legislative session, which would start up in January 2021. Um, but I think there could potentially be other ways to get it done um, before then, um, even if we don't see it passed in the next five days. Um, but I think that that is one of the options is that it gets reintroduced in January.
a couple quick questions. One is you recently, or I think the coalition recently put out a list of legislators who were champions mm -hmm. and it had 80 something champions. I did notice doing my math that there were more than that number of people who co-sponsored the Roe Act. Can you speak just a little bit to what defined a champion and why we don't see maybe all the co-sponsors on there? That's a good question that I actually don't have the answer to. Um, so that, in, I think you're referring to the endorsement process um, that Near All Pro-Choice and Planned Parenthood Advocacy Fund of Massachusetts did um, for the first time. They did joint endorsements of um, Roe Act champions. And so I'm not actually sure um, because the ACLU is nonpartisan, we weren't involved in that process. You're in a really unique position, Olivia, because you're at the ACLU of Massachusetts. You had different legislative priorities. The Roe Act was one of them. You have seen some success and some real media attention paid in the last couple of weeks to looking at reform in police. And that was an incredible job that you've done. I'm sure there was no sleeping over there, literally, um, as these sessions went you know, way into the night hours. Do you see a difference in how the media covers some legislative priorities? Yeah, for sure. Um, there are definitely differences um, in the way the media covers legislative priorities. And I think it's hard to know exactly what the media is going to pick up on. And I think part of what we're doing is hoping to create um, the atmosphere for that media coverage. Um, and we have we have sort of all experienced those frustrations about the Roe Act um, and coverage of some of the rallies we had outside the state house and the lobby days. Um, we have definitely had to fight for um, sort of attention, for lack of a better word, in the media. Um, and you know, I might be biased, but I I think this has been a really well run campaign. Um, and I think we've we've created a lot of um, public pressure. Um, in, in Massachusetts on this issue. And so it has definitely been frustrating um, to see the lack of uh, media coverage um, over this over the last um, year and a half. Yeah, I don't have like a, a, a good answer for why necessarily that is. I mean, over the last few weeks with the police reform bill, um, there has been a, a political moment because of the, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who have been protesting police brutality across the country. Um, and Thankfully, our legislature was sort of compelled to act on that. Um, and so um, jumping on that political opportunity and, and, and pushing forward these reforms um, has been really important. Um, and we seem to, uh, you know, I think there have been political moments for Roe also over the last um, year or so, but it just hasn't quite materialized. It stood out to me in the newspaper that the rally that you organized was powerful with hundreds of people walking up to the state house, and the coverage that day in the Globe, at least, and the Herald was barely visible. I'm trying to remember, was there an article? I don't think so. I don't think there was an article. Maybe there's a picture. Yeah. And so interesting, but don't feel bad because as Red Cliffs, we've stood out there where there's news people right there. They want to take your picture for their personal self to have, but they don't want to share it in the news. It's as if they didn't want to talk about it. Yes. E echoing your frustrations without a real, uh, <laughs> real answer to, to why that's. <laughs> and misery can love company. <laughs> so Olivia, five days left. What do you think? What are the odds? Oh my gosh. We're all uh, crossing our fingers over here, but it, it's, it's, it's more than crossing your fingers, right? I mean, the fact that we've even gotten this far is because, because of the powerful movement that we've built, all of the actions that all of the groups have taken. And so it's certainly not luck or chance that has um, sort of gotten us to this moment. And so that's sort of what we're, we're operating on our hard work over the next five days. Um, there's, there's phone banks happening today, Wednesday and Thursday um, on this issue as a final push before what we think is the end of the legislative session. 
um, hard to put a, a number on the odds, but I think uh, my, my answer to this will be that rather than operating on chance, let's just go as hard as we can, right? Because that's, that's the only way we can get it over the finish line. Um, you know, operating within the reality that if it might not happen and we might have to, to come back and do it again, but I know that I'm, I'm not tired yet. Um, and I hope you're not either. Uh, it's been, it's been a long fight. Um, and, and it may continue, but I hope that we'll, we'll continue to be in it together um, through the very end. Well, just say to anyone listening, get thee to a phone bank, call your <laughs> friends. It's, it's really, it's a lot better to spend a couple more hours now than do this for another two years. It's, it's really worth it, right? Yes. That's right. That's right. Put the work in now. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking time today and visiting with us. Awesome. Thanks. It's been a, a great to work with you and, and thanks for having me here. Um, this is really cool. I'm glad that you guys are um, doing this podcast. It's great. And I'm also jealous of Martha, wherever Martha is right now, because that background looks really good. <laughs> Just my yard. You're invited. Just give me a phone call. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Olivia.